today's parasha is Bahar. And it relates to the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year in, I think most notably in Christianity, they recognize the sabbatical year as the, uh, the year of Jubilee. But in fact, the year of Jubilee is every 50 years, as opposed to every seven years. So every seven years you have to have a Shemitah, which is a sabbatical year, and the 50th, at the 50th it's a year of Jubilee. But the Shemitah is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting command from God. It's, uh, it's, it, rel it re relates specifically to agrarian communities. Um, for the last 2,000 years, it's been difficult for, well, prior to Israel becoming a state again, um, it was difficult for the, the Jewish people to keep the laws regarding the Shemitah uh, because the laws of the Shemitah are directly affected, uh, directly affect the land of Israel. There's no commandment to have a Shemitah outside of Israel. Um, so if you, if you read the scriptures and you kind of understand what that means, it's, it's, uh, it's, a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a question on how we as a people keep it outside of the land of Israel. But in Israel today, there is a community um, that, does, that does keep this, this law. Um, and every seven years, basically the seventh year, there's six years. And then on the seventh year for that entire year, the land is to not be tilled, it's not to be uh, produced on, uh, it's the fruit that is, that is on the land is to be given to everybody, uh, you know, anyone can come and eat from it, and there are very, there are many uh, communities in Israel, probably kibbutzim, that, that do this uh, type uh, following that command. But it does mean something, I mean, God doesn't say some, God doesn't uh, give a command for just for no reason, right? So I think that God's commands not only associate to the physical and what happens in the physical, but also to the spiritual. So we have to understand the Shemitah in light of the spirit. And we're kind of going to talk a little bit about both uh, today and what it might mean to us as believers um, and what that, what that means. But in essence, uh, I, I read a commentary uh, this week about the uh, Shemitah, and I liked one specific commentary where um, the the rabbi had the rabbi in the in the uh, in the Talmud had said that uh, you know the six days of work are kind of posted by two Shemitah, right? So you have a Shemitah, and then you have six days, and then you have a Shemitah. Right, and then you have six days, and then you have a shemitah. So it's not like you're coming out of the you're not coming out of the work into a into a rest. You're coming out of a rest into a work into a rest into a work. So even God, prior to building the and designing the the earth, he was in a state of shemitah, and then he worked for six days, and then he rested again. Um, and the scriptures tell us that six days are as what to God? 
Go ahead, say it. A thousand years. So a day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and you know, a, uh, you know, a thousand years is, is to the Lord is a day, a day to us, um, etc. So if you think about this, this concept, it's, it's very prevalent in rabbinic uh, midrash. You, you hear a lot about what, what the requirements around the Shemitah are. But let's talk specifically where this rests. It's in Vayikra, chapter 25, uh, verses 1 through 7. It says, The Lord spake to Moshe in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard, that which groweth of its own accord. Of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest to the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be meat for you, for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger that sojourneth with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beast that are in thy land, thou shalt shall all the increase thereof be meat. Um, there's probably, uh, and I don't, I'm not a farmer, Okay, um, there are farmers that, there are, there are individuals here that have been raised on a farm that may tell us that there is a lot of value to allow the land to rest to the farmer and to its crops. Okay, if you continually, you know, uh, beat up the land constantly and you don't allow the land to have rest, your fruit will not, will not uh, prosper, okay? So if you're interested in having a little more conversation about that, you can see Rabbi Stephen, uh, who was, in fact, raised on a farm. Um, and he, we all know that. Um, but the, the point is, is that we probably have farmers here in the United States that do do this naturally, right? Because they understand in an agrarian society that there are certain fields that need to allow them to rest and and let the soil and the dirt work what it needs to. And God's not uh, ignorant to that fact. And uh, he was giving them a command uh, to allow them to prosper and have abundance while they work. Okay, so it wasn't only just that uh, you give rest to God and you give rest to the land and it's just a blind commandment. There's reasons behind the command itself. Okay, there... With rest comes prosperity. Um, think about, think about uh, your, and, and again, that sounds like I'm heading down a prosperity teaching. I'm not. I don't do that. I don't believe in the prosperity teachings. But um, God does, in fact, desire that we prosper. And, in fact, does have a, uh, he does have a, a formula for prosperity that if we follow it, it should work. Um, but, but it takes us doing work to get there. It just doesn't come, okay? So, you know, there's a, there's a value in understanding what we should do. But the point is, is that the harvest here should not have been uh, taken. You, you leave it alone. You let the land rest. You, you allow yourself to have an opportunity to think, to relax. Um, 
If you ever, have you ever felt like you've, you've just been turning your wheels, you know, so much in your mind and you're trying to think about how to do things and fix things, but then if you just stop and you give yourself a break and you kind of escape from it, invariably you're going to come to a place in your life where you have aha moments. And, and typically it comes out of rest. That's why people take vacations, okay? They, they, have, to, they have to kind of get out of uh, the grind, if you will, kind of escape from what is, what is natural for us is to constantly work and uh, think about it. But it's the same, it's same, the same concept that, that we're talking about here in the Shemitah. If you give yourself a rest, and you give yourself a chance to just let it go, things can change. The field might ripen. It might become more fruitful. Um, but you have to give yourself a rest. And God is smart in order to tell us to do that because he knows that, yes, some of us who are made to work by the sweat of our brow uh, will continue, continue to beat our heads against the wall um, and continue to, to work hard. Now, there are those people in the world that have zero interest in work. Um, I'm not talking about any of you, obviously, but there are people in the world that don't. But in, the, in reality, you, you're, you cannot be on a constant Shabbat. Okay, you cannot continually be on Shabbat. It, you have to, you have to work. But God is saying here that I will provide you rest from your work. So here we have in Leviticus 25 the reporting of the laws of Shemitah, which command Israel to sow their field for six years, and on the seventh to allow it to endure a Shabbat menucha. A Shabbat rest. And the scriptures open the door for interpreting God's intentions with the earth. You see, the rabbis believed that the earth would only last for 6,000 years. Okay? That's interesting. The, rab the rabbinate believed, and, and is throughout all of Talmud, that the earth would last 6,000 years. This has been a debate forever, as long as we know ex existence. Remember that 6,000 years is six days to God. So think about it. Shabbat rest, six days God works. Shabbat rest, six days the, the, the earth lives. Shabbat rest. Okay, so if this is the case, if 6,000 years is, a day, is six days to God, he rested, he worked for six days, he rested, he allowed six days to go on, and then and he worked these six days because he's constantly working on you and I he's constantly working on the world for so, so, so for 6,000 years we allow the earth to to flourish and to work and to grind and at some point the earth is going to require a Shabbat menucha which we as believers all understand to be the Olam Haba the world to come we believe that the world to come is that Shabbat Menucha, is that final rest that God is bringing to us. Now, we believe it to be the final rest. We're not sure if that is the final rest, but we do believe that for a thousand years, there will be peace. If you believe in the Bible, you believe in that. Okay? That thousand years is as a day to God. Remember, 
one day to God is a thousand years to us. So if that thousand years of rest to us as, as, as human beings is a day to God, that's just one day of Shabbat to God. Again, time means nothing. Time, is, time means nothing to God. The, you know, when you're, when you're infinite, there is no time. Okay, whether circular, whether linear, whether whatever, there is no time. So time means nothing. But for us, we put God into a box, and what we do is we put barriers around him, and in, in putting barriers around him, we put time to him. And so we say there's a thousand years to a day. And we put God within a, within a time frame, when in fact you cannot put God into a time frame. But to help us, he provides us with day and night. How did he provide us with day and night? When he created, he created the two big spheres in the sky, the sun and the moon, and he's created the stars, and he in fact created for us a day and a night. So we can tell time. It, that was important for us, that, uh, for those of us that age, um, if, if, if you age, it's hard for you not to understand time. Because you're looking in the mirror and you're like, okay, my hair's whiter, my body's, you know, I have more of a dad bod than I've ever had before. Um, you know, there's things that you're looking at and you're saying to yourself, time does exist. But in the grand scheme of things, time does not exist. If we believe that our souls are eternal beings, which we do. Those of us who believe in the scripture, we believe that we are eternal. And that this, that we realize today, that we know of, is temporal. But let's, let's, take, a, let's take a look here at what the rabbis believed, that the earth would, you know, in, and in this communication between the rabbis. The Talmud uh, has a book called Sanhedrin uh, in, the, in chapter 97a. It reveals a place that the sages debated the earth's lifespan. Okay, so this, why is it important um, to, to read what the rabbis say about uh, the earth's lifespan? It's not necessarily, but it's very interesting in terms of knowledge. Okay, there's two things. There's knowledge and there's wisdom and then there's truth. Um, but, but, but in the end, knowledge will lead you to truth. So reading, reading from the sages that were closer to Har Sinai, makes a lot of sense for us, okay? Closer to Harsinai, meaning closer to the time when God gave the commandments to Moses, okay? So, Rabbi Katina said something interesting. He said, 6,000 years shall the world exist. That's a huge claim. To just claim that the world's only going to exist 6,000 years. And the seventh, it shall be desolate. So for 6,000 years, we're going to have a world that exists, and on the 7,000th year, the world will be desolate. Now, the conversation around the, the word desolate is very interesting. Desolate, if you just put it into terms, you're thinking to yourself, well, nothing is going to exist, everything's going to be gone, it's going to be destroyed, and then you put, in, you put into concept all of the... Uh, <laughs> The, the, what do I call them, the doom and gloomers of the world that, that uh, are, are saying that uh, global warming is going to destroy us and, and that uh, uh, AI is going to destroy us. I, I think about Elon Musk. Elon Musk has been saying for years that, that the world is going to collapse due to global warming uh, as, a, as a catalyst as well as AI as a catalyst. 
how AI can destroy uh, humanity, I'm not sure, but he knows a lot more than I do. He's a lot smarter, so maybe he knows something that we don't. Um, but nonetheless, he's anticipating a global collapse of some sort where uh, he doesn't believe, obviously, that the world is going to be completely desolate, but he thinks it's going to be relegated to some corner, some small corner of the world where it's a lot different, which could theoretically be a, a, a Shabbat Menuchah. Who knows? It could be a, a Shemitah. Um, uh, no one knows, but regardless, the rabbis thousands of years ago said that the earth will be desolate on this, the 7,000th year. And the reason he says it, Rabbi Katina quotes, and it is written, the scriptures, that it says, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The Lord alone shall be exalted. Then Rabbi Abaya said, it will be desolate 2,000 years. Okay, where you have one rabbi who has an opinion, you know every, the other rabbi is going to have an opinion. Okay, so it's just, a, it's going to be a fight back and forth. This guy says one, this guy says 2,000. Why? And it is said, after two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up. And we shall live in his sight, the scriptures say. Okay, so here, both of them have a significantly good claim of what the desolation will look like. Uh, you know, they're both using scripture to support their arguments. And they both make sense. It has been taught in accordance with Rabbi Katina, just as the seventh year is one year of release in seven so is the world. One thousand years out of seven shall be fallow. As it is written, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, and it is further said, a psalm in a song for the Sabbath day, meaning the day that is altogether Sabbath. And it is also said, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And then the Tana, Debe Eliyahu, teaches, the world is to exist six thousand years, in the first 2,000 years was desolation, 2,000 years for the Torah to flourish, and the next 2,000 years are the Messianic era. Interesting, this was prior to Yeshua, right? This, this, this argument here of, of explaining this 2,000 years in blocks was prior to Yeshua. So the first 2,000 years were, in essence, desolate. They were, uh, you know, almost Cro-Magnon in, in a way, you know, we, we were banging our heads against the wall trying to figure out how to live and, and it, was, it was, the technology wasn't there. Um, but then all of a sudden, um, you know, as things started to increase and the, and the world became increasingly evil, God did something, he changed something. What did he change? He called Moshe to a mountain and he gave them a way of life. So then here we have a 2000 year uh, shift in, in what we as a people are focused on and so and what we were required to teach the world. So the world became aware of the God of Israel through the Torah, which was provided on Har Sinai. So the first 2,000 years, the world was unaware of the God of Israel. It was just aware of a God. Okay, then they came to know the God of Israel in the Torah at Mount Sinai. And for 2,000 years, that message was propagated by Israel and it was stood up by the kings of Israel, namely Solomon, Shlomo, 
who built a kingdom to God, built a temple to God that the whole world might know that the God of Israel is the one true God to the point where even what the Queen of Sheba comes to visit the temple because of how beautiful and great it was. So here we are in this place, 2,000 years of Torah. We move on. After 2,000 years of Torah, what do you get? The coming of Mashiach. The coming of the Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach. He comes. He shares himself with the world. He doesn't come as Ben David, which, was, which is anticipated. He comes as Ben Yosef, the suffering servant. But the Messianic age begins. So here we are for the last 2,000 years, living in a Messianic age, living in an age and a time when God and His Son, His Mashiach, have been propagated. It's most, you know, mo the most renowned religion probably in the world, okay? There's Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism and, 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 and Muslim and, or Islam. And there's, you know, Judaism, and there's Christianity, and there's a, there's a confusion around who Jesus is between Judaism and Christianity, obviously. Uh, but most every other religion still holds Yeshua as a, as a person of acclaim. Even Islam sees Yeshua as a, as a, as a Messiah of sorts. If you, if you understand what Islam even looks at Jesus as, you know, Yeshua is a prophet in Islam and a prophet in other religions. Judaism is the only one that really rejects Yeshua as anything, understandably, because he was a Jew and he was the Messiah to the Jews and to Israel. And, you know, accepting a man as, a, as, a, as God is very difficult to do. Christianity obviously holds Jesus and Yeshua as, a, as, the, as the highest of all, okay? But here, nonetheless, we have been in a messianic age for 2,000 years. So there's something to be said about the Tana Eliyahu here and what he has to say and, and what, he, what, he understands, what he understands. But we see that the Talmud teaches that what? Our world will last six millennia. We, we, see, we understand that. We, we see it. We recognize it. It's, it's been, and the reason I say, the reason I go there is because this is prior to the New Testament. This is prior to Yeshua on the earth. This conversation has been lasting forever. Okay, so you, you have to understand that when you're, when you're reading the extra biblical texts, you're trying to get yourself kind of acclimated to what the conversations have been throughout the years and how they understand scripture in light, of their mod, in light of their day. So we've been taught for, for, for ages that the world will last six millennia. The first two are devoted to creation. The second two are devoted to Torah. And the last two are devoted to Mashiach. For believers, this suggests, a high, this suggestion is highly significant in that for the past 2,000 years, Yeshua is and has been the central figure of mankind. To the first century hearers, they would have been just they, they would have just begun this messianic hope and finding encouragement in John's vision. You know, John wrote a vision in Revelation about what the end would look like, 
and there's all kinds of speculation and, and, and debate and interpretation around John's vision in, in the book of Revelation. But that book would have provided hope to the first century hearers during their time. Okay, The hope wasn't for some distant future. The book of Revelation was specific to the people of that day, the first century hearers. It meant something to them in that day at that time. A lot of times what we like to think is that it was a, a prophetic book and that the book of Revelation really only applies to some time in the future and more specifically in Christianity, they believe it applies to them because they think they're living in the time of John's vision. Well, John's vision was actually for the people of that day. What's the point of a prophet if the prophet isn't speaking to the people of that day? The prophet is to speak for those people and give them hope and encouragement. It also gives us and provides us hope and encouragement because there's pieces of the prophetic that have not been fulfilled. However, we have to understand that in light of, in light of the time of Yeshua and the time of the, of the first century believers, the book of Revelation mattered big time and it provided hope. John provided hope to them. In addition, the, the the sages suggest that in the seventh millennium, the world will cease to exist have we, how we've been accustomed to, okay? Rather than saying just desolation, just absolute uh, uh, destruction, let's, let's argue that it, it will cease to exist the way we've been accustomed. It'll become a world of freedom from oppression and, and of sin, causing all nations to embrace godliness which is found through the Torah remember that the the seventh millennia the 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 7,000th year if it is to be a Shabbat Menucha if it is to be a Shabbat rest if it is to be a Shemitah uh, to God it has to provide freedom to the oppressed it has to stop sin it has to put God as the focal point. It has to be a life that people live according to the Torah because that's what rest is. Okay, so the world will rest from sin. This sounds a lot like John's vision. Okay, this sounds a lot like the point that when Yeshua returns, there will be a thousand year reign that he sits on the throne as the focal point that all will praise him, that all will worship him, that all will give him, him glory, and, and that there will be no oppression, there will be no sin, okay, during this, this time, and they will all worship him. It sounds a lot like the vision of John. So according to the sages, Shemitah, the seventh year, like Shabbat, the seventh day, represents the messianic age to come. The Shemitah is most notably known in, in Christian circles, as we discussed, as this, this year of Jubilee. But as we know, the year of, uh, the year of Jubilee is the 50th. But, but it, it's a year of liberation nonetheless. It's where slaves are freed. It's where debts are cleared and hope is restored. The Messianic Age is the first century, uh, in the first century, would have most likely represented a picture of this year of Jubilee. 
Just as the children of Israel were required to allow the land to rest after six years of toil, so possibly the believers of the first century thought that God would do the same for the earth that he created. Moreover, after 6,000 years of toil, God would bring true rest to the earth through Shabbat Menuchah. For thousand, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or a watch in the night, as it says in Psalms. So this Olam Haba, this Shabbat Menucha, this Shemitah, this period of time that we are anticipating, we're all anticipating it, okay? Because, you know, if you think about the Shemitah, you're not thinking about, oh, it's a Shemitah year. By the way, we live, we're in one right now. I don't know if you know that. But right now is a Shemitah year. It started on September 21st of 2021, and it goes through September 21st of 2022. So we are currently in, right now, residing in, a Shemitah year. No one here probably knew that you were in a Shemitah year. No one here is saying to themselves, I'm not going to go outside until my ground. How many of you went outside and planted a garden? How many, are, how many of you are, are outside this year and putting, putting uh, you know, tomato plants in? Because you want to see how, you know, what a green thumb you may have. You're not keeping the laws of Shemitah. You're theoretically not required to because you're not in Israel. So, till away. However, the point is, is that you probably didn't realize you were living in this year a time period that is very significant to us as believers in anticipation of what will be in the Olam Haba the world to come. Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 provides us with a time frame that the serpent will be chained in the abyss awaiting his release. Okay, so why do I even bring up the serpent chained in an abyss awaiting a release? Because there will be a great war. Do we all believe that? I think the Bible says that there will be a great war. Armageddon. And we, 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 we see where that is. In Israel, there's a land that's still there uh, that people believe that that Armageddon battle will occur where the Mashiach will come and he will capture that beast and he will put him in an abyss and chain him there. And that's what the vision of John even says. And that's what people believe for ages and ages and ages and ages. So here we have this, this serpent that's chained in an abyss Framed for us in Revelation chapter 20, at verse 4 in Revelation 20, the scripture says that Jesus, Yeshua, will reign with his resurrected martyrs for 1,000 years, judging and ruling the earth to bring about peace. Peace. Well, when you give a Shemitah, that's what you're doing with the land. You're giving the land peace. Imagine you're, 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 you're beating the snot out of that land every year. There's no peace there. There's no peace on the land, but you provide it with peace at the, at the Shemitah. Here, for a thousand years, the Lord will reign with his martyrs to give shalom in a period of Olam Haba. The Messianic rule mirrors this common Jewish belief that spread throughout the first century and, and that Jews anticipated the day in which the occupation of Rome 
would end through the arrival of the Mashiach and the institution of the Messianic kingdom in Yerushalayim. According to the, to the oral Torah, the Babylonian Amora uh, Samuel held the view that the only difference between the present time and the Messianic era lie in the fact that Israel's current subjection to the rule of alien empires would cease. The new order of things would therefore, according to him, first commence after the age of the Messiah was over. Okay, that's interesting. The idea of a messianic age followed by Olam Haba. So there's a new order that's commenced after the messianic age. Okay, well that, that kind of coincides with what we, what we see. After the thousand year reign, what happens? There's a judgment, right? There's a great white throne judgment. Everybody talks about it, you know. That, when I say it like that, I sound Baptist. You know, there's a, this big judgment that happens. And they all are put in front of God and they all are judged. And then the, the, the wicked are taken here and the righteous are put here. And this sounds like a typical... Baptists, where are you going to go when you die? Right? Well, I think we need to understand that that is going to happen. There's going to be this rain. We believe it. If you believe the Bible, you believe it. After the rain, there's a judgment. But then after judgment, there's something. It's a whole new world. It's a whole new world, not the shape of a sphere, but the shape of a cube. It's completely different. The structure of it's different. There's rivers flowing to the throne. There's no day nor night. There's only the light of God that keeps things light. It changes completely after the messianic age and after the, the Shemitah. So once this Shemitah for the world happens, after this 7,000th year, God sets a whole new order. He goes to work again and rebuilds. It's a different way of thinking. Okay, it's not going to be like we are now, right? Heaven, what is heaven? Everybody believes that heaven is some celestial place that your soul escapes to. Once you die, it goes off and it's in this place in the clouds. Um, you know, there's a lot of scripture that, that, that support that your soul rests when you, when you die and awaits resurrection. There is a place that there's scripture that support. There's a place that your soul may go. And this is, you know, in the Catholic Church, it's called uh, what? It's called, uh, what's it called? Pur purgatory in the Catholic Church. Right? It's a place your soul goes to await. To await what? Resurrection. Resurrection to what? Olam Haba. Olam Haba. The world to come. Olam Haba even suggests something different than this world because it's the world to come. 
It's a different world than what we are accustomed to. Is it flat? Is it round? The same conversations we've had throughout the centuries, it's the same thing. What is the world to come? The Bible says it's a cube. It's much larger than what we're used to as well. It's not the same. Interestingly, this idea of a messianic age followed by an olam haba world to come is echoed in John's revelation through his depiction of a 1,000-year messianic reign followed by judgment and subsequent by the new heaven and the new earth. It's new. It's not the same. Like I said before, you have a Shemitah, you have a rest, and something clicks. And you make things new. And here God's doing the same. Another elemental Jewish tradition that surfaces in the discussion of the Messianic age is that of the resurrection of the dead, Tachiyat Hamatim. Tachiyat Hamatim is, a, is, a, is, a, uh, is something very, that's uh, discussed throughout through all Judaism because the resurrection of the dead is an interesting concept. Does the dead actually resurrect? There are people that believe when you die, you die. There are people that believe when you die, you're reincarnated. There are people that believe when you die, you're waiting to be, to be resurrected. In fact, there's a bone in your body called the loose bone. In Hebrew, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a bone that is specific to you. It's your specific DNA, and it's how the, the, the Jews believe that God is going to know who you are and put your soul in the right body. It's your body. It's your DNA. So when somebody, when somebody cremates themselves, which is wrong. We talked, I talked about this week a little bit with somebody. When they cremate themselves, which according to Scripture, we are not to do that. But when somebody does, or when they have a, uh, when, you know, when they, when they burn up in a fire or, or whatever, can God re restore their body? Can, it, can he bring it back together? Because your bones have to come back together, right? You, you have the same bones as you had before in resurrection. You know, according to our, our traditions. Well, that loose bone helps God remake you into who you were. Hopefully, hopefully a little thinner, a little more muscular. But he turns you into who you were. And he puts your soul back where it belongs. So here we have this concept, this tradition of Tachiyat Amatim, that the rabbis and the sages also debated um, this, this concept of resurrection. But in the first century, it was Pharisees that propagated the message of resurrection to life in the Olam Haba. That's why it makes sense that Yeshua would have, been, would have talked specifically about resurrection. The Pharisees are the ones that would have propagated that message of resurrection. Okay? Yeshua was a part of a Pharisaic community. Am I calling Yeshua a Pharisee? And the church would be so upset, you know, if they hear me say that Yeshua was a Pharisee. But Yeshua was a part of the Pharisaic community. It's clear through his teaching. It's clear through what he said. Okay. So they propagated this message. If Yeshua taught about it, we believe Yeshua is God, the Son of God. He is one with God. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Okay, you can only have one God. He is a part of. He is. He's, he is one with Him. And if He said it is true, 
it must be true. That's the, that's the logic behind it. Let's look at what Josephus writes. Who's Josephus? He's a historian. He's very important to, to, uh, to us to understand what goes on in the first century and throughout history, uh, specifically uh, related to the Jewish people. But in Antiquities of the Jews, uh, book 18, verse 1, he says, They, the Pharisees, also believe that souls have immortal vigor in them, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in life. And the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again on account of which doctrines they are able greatly to persuade the body of people. See, this is a Jewish concept. This is not a Christian idea. This is not a Catholic thing. Heaven, hell, detain, souls being detained in a prison for everlasting. This is a Jewish idea that came from what? The, the Torah. Remember, everything that's debated in the, in the, in the, in the Talmud, okay, and that the Pharisees would have used to, to speak, came from the Torah. The Torah doesn't give us all of the, the color around the conversations of that time. The oral traditions give us a little more color, a little more conversation about what happened then. So here we see that where Josephus is telling you that the Pharisees are persuading people that there's this idea of resurrection, of immortal vigor inside of a soul, of revivification that your, body, your soul will literally come forth and, and, and connect again with your body. They're, they're, this concept is, is changing the way people are thinking, and Josephus recognizes it, and he's documenting it because it's a true movement. It's changing things. Whatsoever they do about divine worship, about prayers and sacrifices, they perform them according to their direction, insomuch that the cities gave great attestation to them on account of the entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourse also. Josephus has a very high opinion of the Pharisees here. The Pharisees are moving people. Okay? They're moving people, but their belief set that we just read about doesn't carry off too far from what we believe. In Christianity, you'll hear people say, oh, he's a Pharisee. Well, in thought, so are many of you. In belief, so are many of you. So here we have this concept, this idea of resurrection, revivication, the way the soul works. You, you, hear, you, hear this, you hear this idea of a divine spark in the soul of man. You have a divine spark, and your goal and your, and your purpose in life is to, is to make an abode for God here on earth. What do we do with this divine spark that's inside of us? We make God present on earth so that everyone else can see him. That's why, you know, Christianity, Messianic Judaism, Judaism, we, we tell people, live your life well as an example 
for God because you represent God. You make God an abode here on earth. We say it to our children. But here we see this discourse in the Talmud about the topic of resurrection and the rabbinic understanding from the Torah. Tractate Sanhedrin 91 and 92 tell us to look into the discussion and the rhetoric of the rabbinate as it sought to prove that resurrection existed in the Torah. See, resurrection isn't the concept of, of Christianity. Resurrection isn't a concept of Yeshua, of Jesus coming. Resurrection isn't a concept of, of some new religion, okay, and the, the religion of Paul. Resurrection is a concept of God that was given to us in the Torah, that was passed down through the people of Israel, who are what? The priests to the nations. Their job is to be the priests of the nations. But we as a people, we have, a people of Israel have abdicated our position and we've allowed the nations to go off and do whatever they like we don't embrace other nations into Israel we push the other nations outside of Israel we abdicate we abdicated our position so the rabbis are talking about resurrection it's very important it's important before Yeshua even returned that they're talking about resurrection and the, the, the debate is that Torah itself does not speak of resurrection. It is merely through prophetic and extra-biblical texts that we receive an understanding, and the argument reveals the central debate between the two mainline Jewish sects of the first century. You have two people. You have the Sadducees and you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones that really propagate that message. The Sadducees say, you know, there is no such thing as resurrections. I'm not going to say that really lame joke that every Christian pastor says. It's a really lame joke. But here, you have two people debating it, and the Sadducees were known to revere only the Torah as the infallible word of God. That's it. No prophetic writings, no voices of the prophets, no extra-biblical uh, text, no Dead Sea Scrolls, no nothing. Just the first five books. They didn't believe in anything else. Okay? The Pharisees, however, believed that all was inspired word of God including the prophets, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the writings of, uh, of, of, of Solomon, the wisdom, you know, there's books that we don't even read, the wisdom of Solomon. Does anyone read the wisdom of Solomon? Have you ever read that? Have you ever read the book of the wisdom of Solomon? No, I'm sure you haven't. Some of us have. I have. It's beautiful. And it's quoted in the New Testament by our rabbis who wrote the New Testament they quote it but we don't recognize it and in fact there's a lot of people in, in Christianity and even in Messianic Judaism that if you would quote that book they'd go well I don't that's not God's word well what's God's word then you will get this this is even more interesting the Bible says you should not add nor subtract from this book. If you do, you are, you know, considered one of the evil ones. What book? The book of Revelation. Not the Bible, because that scripture, it pertains specifically to the book of Revelation. So... We take scripture when it fits our, our needs and we put it into a, into a box and then we, we do this or that. But the point is, is that 
There are inspired words from God all around us that we should be taking from and understanding. The book of Enoch, how many of you read that? It's an interesting one. They used it in the first century. It's an interesting book, or they would have used it. It kind of gives you a lot of color around what was going on prior to the flood, after the flood, whatever. I mean, the whole story, I mean, it gives you an interest, interesting idea of, of what the world is going to look like, who, who demons are, who demons aren't, who evil spirits are, who evil spirits aren't. I mean, things that we don't get, right? I mean, it provides you some unique things. I'm not saying that you guys take it as the Word of God and you start preaching it. I'm saying it's interesting. The argument reveals to us, this argument between these Sadducees and Pharisees, that the central debate between these two sects needs to be further fleshed out by even us. The Pharisees believed that the Torah and the prophetic books were true. The Sadducees believed the Torah was the only infallible word. And clearly, in the book of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, we realize unique images of resurrection. And this is why the Pharisees would have had this belief in resurrection. They, they, they held the, the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, uh, uh, you know, to name a couple, in Dan, the book of Daniel, as the God's word and as proof. But in the Torah, what's the rhetoric can be, that can be applied for the proof of the phenomenon? Because obviously the Pharisees had to come up with a reason in the Torah for the Sadducees to prove them wrong. So Sanhedrin 91b provides us insight into that rhetoric defending where the rabbis are defending resurrection. The discussion follows as such. It has been taught by Rabbi Mayer that said, whence do we know resurrection from the Torah? Question mark. From the verse, then shall Moses and the children of Israel sing this song unto the Lord. Not sang, but shall sing. It is written, thus resurrection is taught in the Torah. Interesting. He takes a verb and he applies the tense of that verb and says, it has to be, look, they're singing, not saying. It's not, it's not the past, it's the present. Therefore, they're, they're to be alive, and they are to resurrect. Yeshua makes a similar argument following that very same logic in Matthew 22, verse 31 through 34. How is it possible that Yeshua makes a similar argument? It's a very, because it's a very Pharisaic argument. The Pharisees would have argued this way. He says, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, Yeshua says, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've been saying things like this. How are you silencing them? What did you tell them? So he tells them. He's the, he's the God of Abraham Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Meaning what? That they are alive and will come again. Out of the mouth of Yeshua. These are red letters. Okay? So if you can't believe in resurrection, you clearly have to start believing in resurrection because these are red letters. He said it. If he said it, it must be true. 
The rabbis point out the verb form sing versus sang, as we said earlier. Similarly, Yeshua addresses the word living as opposed to dead. Both to prove a major theological interpretation of Scripture in the first century, that resurrection is truth, and John is pulling from his teachers as his vision begins to unfold. So I provide this backdrop as a context for the period in which John was presenting his vision of resurrection and life. And why, why John specifically? Because John, I believe, is the one book in the, in the, in the Brit that we can take and know and understand that the Shemitah is real. The book of Revelation provides us with concept, the understanding of the Shemitah. In a, in a spiritual sense, not, not the physical agrarian sense, but in a spiritual sense for us as believers and what is to be. So is the Shemitah prophetic? Yes. Is the Shemitah daily, like, like real, like for us, modern day? Yeah, it is. It's a law that is to be applied in the context that it should be applied, which is the context of Israel. Don't freak out and go home and start, you know, just shut down and stop weeding your garden because we're in the United States, so you're safe. But the point is, is that it means something to us physically and it means something to us spiritually. The place where we find that spiritual meaning is in the book of Revelation. And if you believe in the book of Revelation, you believe in what John's scripture says, then you must in fact believe that there is this future, this, there is this Shemitah, there is this, this time period where we will find uh, resurrection to life in a place that is new. Uh, among certain sects of the Pharisees, the idea of revivification was a widespread teaching within synagogues and temple discourses. But John and his hearers most likely have experienced this Pharisaic teaching about resurrection and its attainment through living a virtuous life. That's someone's alarm. They're out there in the car. They're trying to figure it out. Um, but resurrection and attainment through living a virtuous life, especially through the teachings of Yeshua. In Judaism, a virtuous life is attributed to an individual that followed the mitzvot of God, in essence, guarding the commandments of the Torah as closely as one can. And in fact, the only possible route to righteousness was through the laws and the commands of God in his Torah. Those who are believers understand and realize that that is not the route. If it was, Yeshua would not have had to die. Understand that. Living a virtuous life is important. But grace is more important. Because it's an impossibility to completely do what is required. God understands it. He knew it. He recognized it. He established his, his, his son as a, a solution to it. And in the very beginning, when life, uh, when life fell for all of us, God gave us a way to experience the Shemitah and peace and rest with him. So, a similar message of commitment to Torah emerges out of John's vision. 
It says, the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Yeshua and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand came to life and reigned with Yeshua, the Messiah, for a thousand years. Those that had been beheaded came to life and reigned with Mashiach for a thousand years. That's not everybody, FYI. Okay, a lot of people think that this is, you know, that everyone is going to resurrect from the dead at this time, before the thousand years, okay? We get into this whole premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you know, the whole concept of when things are happening, okay? But the, there's a timeline that's very clearly depicted out for us in the book of Revelation. I've given a teaching on it. I'm not going to go through it now. But in general, this is not the re resurrection of all dead. Okay, the resurrection of all dead comes later, not at this point. This is just the resurrection of the martyrs, and they get to rule and reign with God for a thousand years because they were beheaded, because they made the choice, and in fact, their judgment had already been sealed. And the reason they're resurrected first and resurrected to reign during the thousand years is because they've already been judged when they allowed someone to cut their head off for God and the kingdom. That was their judgment. God said, there's no way this is not my man. He allowed his head to be lopped off for me. There is no other judgment for that person. They are judged. So they're allowed to raise from the dead prior to the great white throne judgment that will be. Because they were already judged, and God has brought them into his kingdom already. Okay, they were already sifted out, separated out, wheat from the chaff. They're wheat. And he brought that wheat out because their heads, and he brought their head, and he put it back on their body, and he put their soul inside of them. And it's a beautiful thing. You really can't confuse that when you read it. A lot of people do get confused by it, and they're saying, no, no, that's not what, you know, that's not what, it, no, don't debate me, because it's very clear, and I know that John writes in a very circular manner, and, and things go like this, when you're reading him, he goes from this point in time to this point in time, and then he goes back to this point in time to this point in time, when you're reading Revelation, but this is very clear, the timeline, okay, you can't confuse it, read it for yourself, stop listening to uh, the Left Behind series because it's wrong. So here they are, they raise, they rule, they reign. This resurrected, the resurrected martyrs are afforded a significant blessing. This revivification is, is, is the result of their unwavering commitment to God. Their heads rolled because of God and for God. And here John encourages his hearers to abandon the fear of death, to embrace the concept of true life, and ultimately experience a blessing to rule with Melech Mashiach Yeshua for a thousand years of world order. Why would it have been important for, for, the, for John at this time to speak to these people about martyrdom? They're all being martyred. Doesn't it make sense to you that he's writing this at this time? At the, for this purpose to these people they're all being crucified and martyred for God for Yeshua so yes this book Revelation is for them and for us 
because it talks about what will come. But at that time, be encouraged, those of you who are about to lose your lives. For those of you who are about to come out here and take, and take the stand for the King of kings and Lord of lords, be encouraged, for there will be a day that you rise from the dead and you rule and reign with him as he returns. I mean, that is the message, and it's a beautiful one. And it's interesting that the remaining dead, as we talked about, they stay in the ground until the last judgment. That white throne judgment. That, that Baptist judgment. Which trails the thousand years, suggesting that there's in fact two stages of life after death. The Messianic Age and the Olam Haba. And we just set this in order as we started talking about this teaching. The Messianic Age precedes the Olam Haba. The Olam Haba is the Shemitah. Well, no, the, the Messianic Age, when Yeshua comes and rules and reigns for a thousand years, is the Shemitah. After that, it's like day one again. It's a new world. Day one, all over again. Remember, you have a Shabbat. You have six days of resting. You have a Shabbat. Shemitah, six days, Shemitah, six days. So it starts all over again with a new world and a new heaven and a new earth. And maybe it's been like that forever. I'm not going to get into that because that gets interesting. There's a lot of people that think there were worlds before this world. But the point is, is that it's, very, it's, a, it's a very interesting concept in light of the fact that God is infinite. And God is forever. And we're just 6,000 years old. Or 800 million, whatever you want to call it. You know, regardless, we're 6,000 years old, right? So there's two, two stages of life. The remaining dead, they're, in the, they're, they're not resurrected until the, the time of Alam Haba, the new heaven and the new earth. And John's hearers would have, been, would have had the ability to clearly understand the secrets of the teachings that pervaded religious Pharisaic societies for years for years, Pharisees have been talking like this. And I argue that John's message uh, of, of the resurrection adds, significantly, uh, adds significant increased truth to the hearers as a result of their current persecution and the opportunity to embrace God's commands through rejecting the world. And just as our Messiah was, was persecuted, crucified, and resurrected for his message, the hearers are encouraged to walk in a similar path of Yeshua in persecution, death, and resurrection to be accounted righteous upon his return. All right, let's, let's close this up by talking about the millennial reign for a moment. There's a common Jewish belief today and millennia ago that God intended to restore his people back to Gan Eden. Gan Eden is the Garden of Eden. And that God intends to restore us back to Gan Eden. In fact, in Hebrew, a lot of times when, when we talk about heaven, we call it Gan Eden. When we talk about the future world, we talk about Gan Eden, where we're headed, where we're going. Once in Gan Eden, once in Gan Eden, you'll hear it. Rabbis say it all the time when you're in heaven. As it is written with the first Adam, the idea does not purport to say that mankind will actually live in the very same garden 
that God gave to Adam, but rather the state of mankind will be the same as it was in the beginning. You guys excited about walking around naked? No, no I don't think so. I'm not excited for you. But the state of mankind is a little bit different. It's the same, but it's not the same place. So ultimately, mankind will be surrounded by the illumination of the divine presence, the ziva shechina that existed in the beginning. It's be clothed Adam, and it's what clothed Adam and his wife. You know, we say Adam and his wife were, were naked, but the reality is they were clothed. They were clothed with the ziva shechina, with the glory of God, with the with the with the. Okay, what is ziva shechina in Christianity? It's the Shekinah, okay? It's a different word. The Shekinah glory. Ziva Shekinah in Hebrew is the same thing. You're covered by it. You're covered in it. It wraps you. You don't realize you're naked. The moment you fall, the moment you sin, the Ziva Shekinah flees. Why? Light has no presence with darkness. It can't be there when you're in the midst of evil or wickedness. Therefore, it goes away. And therefore, once the Ziva Shekinah left Adam after he ate from the fruit of that tree, he looked down and realized he was naked. He didn't realize he was naked until Zivashchina left him. Now it leaves him. Why? Because he falls, he sins, he looks down, he sees he's naked, he covers himself with some leaves. God says to him, how is it that you know that you're naked? Did you not listen to me and did you not follow my instruction? Interesting. God knew because why? Zivashchina came back to him. There's a woman with issue of blood in the New Testament. She needed a healing. So what does she do? She runs up to Yeshua. She grabs the hem of his garment. And Yeshua says, who touched my garment? I felt power come from me. God looks at Adam. He says, who told you you were naked? Why? He felt power come back to him. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. He knew it. Here we are, in many respects, in the millennial reign of our Mashiach. It's going to usher in the beginning of what is to become Gan Eden, which is going to, what is to become the heavens for mankind on earth. And for example, using the explanation of Olam Haba previously discussed, a period to follow the Messianic age. Gan Eden, according to John's vision, will not come until the completion of the final judgment and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. This will be Gan Eden. This will be Gan Eden. When, when God brings back the cube, when he brings the world to come, this is the place of Gan Eden. When there's a river that's flowing straight through to the throne of God and along the river there's, there's trees that have all manners of fruits, 21 different kinds, that, you, that, that is for the healings of the nations. This is the time of Gan Eden and the restoration of his people. The description of the new heaven and the new earth is found in chapter 22. It says that he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Interesting, isn't it? 
proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Both God and the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Yeshua. There's a river of life proceeding from Yeshua. He is the river of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's a river of life flowing from him in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life interesting now the tree of life has been restored from Gan Eden in the beginning so what's the point you're resurrected from the dead you're put back into your body which is corruptible the only way to keep your corruptible body alive is to eat from the tree of life. Which is why God kicked Adam out of Gan Eden in the first place. Because if he didn't, he would have ate from the tree of life forever and lived forever. So he said, you must leave the garden. I'll put a gate with two big angels and some fiery swords to keep you from eating the tree of life. But in the new heaven and the new earth, I have already vetted my people. I have all that are mine with me here. I have all that have sought me and seek me here. And I will provide them again in Ganeden, the new Ganeden, a tree of life, not just one. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life on either side. Which bare twelve manners of fruits, yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. We don't see God's face. In fact, it says we don't see his, we're not supposed to see his face. You should be encouraged because one day we're going to see God's face. It literally says it right here. And they shall see his face. And his name shall be where? In their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. And they need no candle Neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. This is, this is the truth. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. In Judaic terms, this is what would be considered Gan Eden. In Messianic terms, this is Gan Eden. It's Olam Haba, it's the world to come. <clears throat> Which is ultimately occurs after the millennial reign. And it sounds extremely exciting. But why not just take us to the Olam Haba and skip the millennial reign altogether? Why not? Why just skip it? Who wants, who wants the millennial reign? Just let's go right there, right, right, there, right, where, right where we want to be. And some say that this is, the fa this is fact, in fact the case that there will be no millennial reign and that we just simply enter heaven. 
What happens when you die? You go to heaven. No, you don't. Because heaven's here, FYI. Heaven's here. It's not the shape of this earth. It's not, but it's here. It's reshaping. The reading of the scripture does not support any of that. But the question that stands to be asked is why a thousand, why a thousand years of ruling? Why does the Lord simply not create for us the Olam Haba? Why doesn't he just do it immediately and usher in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth without the messianic age? And certainly there's significance found in the millennial reign of the Mashiach, but don't we just want the Olam Haba? That's just what we're all seeking. How will we determine the importance of the millennial reign holds to God and us? It's almost like God is giving them a chance to see him. The scriptures say something very interesting. Blessed are they who believe and have not seen. That's an interesting idea. Because it's hard to believe in something you don't actually see. And some would call you crazy if you told them. I believe in the wind, right? But I don't see it. But I believe in it. Why? Because I feel it. I feel it. It's, it, it, it comes on to me. Those of us that are believers in God, we say, we, don't, we believe in God. I don't see God, but why? I feel Him. He comes onto me. It's the same idea. But maybe some people need to see Him. And He's going to give them a thousand years to do it. And at the end of those thousand years, if you can't, and I release the beast, and I let him go and do his little tranche again, that's when I'll know who truly are mine. That's when I'll know. The thousand years reign is not for us. It's for God. The millennial reign is not for you and I. It's for him. It's for him to know. It's definitely not for those of us who are already believers. Because we're not interested in a thousand year reign. We're interested in the Olam Haba. We can't wait for either one. But the point is... We really can't wait to live forever in the glory which God is going to bring about to us. Amen. It is our duty. Oh, by the way, the whole point of this whole teaching was the Shemitah. Okay, so that is our Shemitah. That is our Shabbat Menuchah. That is the final destination of Shemitah, and we're looking forward to it. And we need to keep our eyes in the spiritual sense, not the physical sense. But in the spiritual sense, that's the purpose of this, of this parasha, Bahar, and this teaching. Amen. It is our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation, for he made us unlike the nations of the lands. He has not placed us like the families of the earth. He's not made our portion like theirs and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee to bow, acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings. The holy one blessed is he. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundation. The seat of his glory is in the heavens above and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He's our God, there's none other. True is our king, there's nothing beside him as it is written in the Torah. You shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is none other. Amen. Amen. Let us stand together.
me a place, set me a place till it's all that I know. Set me a place, set me a place so I'll never grow cold. Set me a place, set me a place till it's all that I know. Set me a place, set me a place so I'll never grow cold. Cold 